Or have you ever met someone that you just sort of click with instantly? You just you get them, they get you, it's easy. Um, this was my experience when I met my wife, thankfully, right? Um, she understood me. I could just relate to her. I didn't have to hide all the quirky, awkward things about me because she knew me and that was okay. For many people, this is their experience when they come to read Ecclesiastes. They go, finally, a book that understands me, a book that sees the world as I see the world, a book that speaks honestly, one that sets out the plain truth, a book that doesn't try to paint the world in a better light than it is. And it's a book that establishes universal truths and therefore has a universal appeal to everyone, Christian or not. It has a deep resonance with people. Now, not always. There are some people who it doesn't resonate so much with and raise objections. We'll work through those in a minute. But it's a book that feels incredibly modern as it asks these big existential questions. What are we doing on this big blue ball? What, what's going on, right? And it digs at the heart of the issue with a scalpel. And it gets beneath the surface and it's unafraid to look at the painful answers that lie there. And even though it's a book that many do resonate with, it's deeply disturbing. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. It's depressing. But depressing in a good way that strips away the pretense of airy, fairy, happy, clappy, rose-coloured glasses view of the world that refuses to see any of the issues and problems that the world has. Ecclesiastes reshapes our understanding of reality so that we'd be able to shape our lives to fit according to that reality better. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, And I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. This is a book that firmly belongs to the wisdom literature of the Old Testament to save you from living a life in the dark, (laughs) to save you from living a life that's pointless that is meaningless, that leads nowhere without a purpose. And it's an incredibly difficult book to grapple with, but one that saves us from throwing away our lives and things that just do not matter. Now, I'm sort of conscious that you may be returning here after Easter, um, the the hope of the resurrection and and how awesome that is. And here we are today going through Ecclesiastes. Now, I feel like I'm about to take a cricket bat to your will to live and just go at you or you're back from camp and you're just exhausted and here we are like i'm gonna drill down on you but hang in there because this is so worth doing it's so worth asking these questions and digging at the heart of these issues and it might lead you to be more curious and go yeah what what is going on and maybe come to open house and figure out more of what's going on the whole christian message I'm going to pray now as we turn to Ecclesiastes that would hear God's word clearly. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, please prepare our hearts and minds that we would be able to understand your word, that it would speak clearly to us and that you would give me clarity as I um, speak now. Uh, Please reshape the way that we live our lives so that it fits your reality. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to charge straight into Ecclesiastes and we're going to read the first three verses and I want you to hear the point that God's word makes to us, that everything is meaningless and the reasons that drop out 
for why that is. But as we do that, I want to just stop and look at some of the, I guess, the, the pieces of context and the themes that come out of those first three verses as well. So have your Bibles open in front of you and read with me from verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Now, pretty strong words straight out the gate, aren't they? This is not a half-baked opinion. This is about as absolute as it gets. And we know the implied answer to the question there in verse 3, don't we? The answer that the text is looking for. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Nothing. Now, we're going to work through why that is in, in a moment, but first, some themes and context. You tracking with me? Themes and context. The first is, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Um, verse 1 says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So tradition has it that this is Solomon speaking. Um, elsewhere, it will speak of his unparalleled wisdom, his pursuit of pleasure and riches and architecture. All these things point towards Solomon. But don't be alarmed if you... I don't know, speak to some people who think that's somebody else. There's enough clues in the text that suggest that it is someone else who's writing with the persona of Solomon in these opening chapters. If you're really keen to talk about that more, I'd be happy to chat more, but I think there are better things to chew the cut over in Ecclesiastes than that. So from now on, we'll just, when we refer to the author of Ecclesiastes, we'll refer to him as the teacher or the preacher because that's how he talks about himself. The second piece of context to pick up is the word meaningless. It's the translation of the Hebrew word hebel. Um, it appears four times in that second verse that we just read, 38 times in the whole book, and it's a really, really big theme of the book. And it's an important, I guess, idea to get right. It's a word that doesn't fit easily into the English language and people debate the best translation of the word sort of includes the ideas of mist and vapour, transience, um, something unable to be grasped, vanity. Now, they're all good things to associate with the word hebel, but meaningless is a good translation that we shouldn't throw out the window. Most of the time, the teacher is communicating with hebel something negative, that mist and vapour just don't capture, they don't carry the negative force of me meaningless. Not all the time, which is why it's helpful that the word hebel is sort of flexible and has a broad definition. But listen to verse 2 and 3 again. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labour which they toil under the sun? Positive or negative, do you think? Positive? No, it's negative. Which brings us to our third piece of context, which is... In verse 3, again, it says, What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Again, this is a major theme of Ecclesiastes. Under the sun. What does it mean? Does it mean under the sun? God is above the sun, but we're under the sun. Everything under the sun is meaningless. I think maybe that's a bit of a stretch. Under the sun is not a reference to life apart from God and his gifts. That's not really possible after all, is it? God is intimately involved in the world under the sun. He gives his common blessings to the righteous and the wicked. 
I take it under the sun rather is a reference to everything. The teacher is making a universal claim that applies to everyone, Israelite or not, Jewish or not, Christian or not. Which brings us back to the main point I think these verses are making for us. Everything is meaningless. We had that question hanging there in verse 3, didn't we? What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's expecting the answer, we gain nothing. He doesn't say it explicitly, but the answer is there, isn't it? Everything is meaningless because we gain nothing. He goes on to give three reasons why. It's in your outline there. Because nothing changes, because nothing is new, and because everything will be forgotten. Let's work through those. Nothing changes. Come with me through verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and then turns to the north and goes round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. On a cosmic scale, things never change. Baby boomers, millennials, Gen X, Y, Z, they all come and go, but the earth is still here. The sun keeps rising and setting, and the wind and the water, they just run their courses. And on a personal scale, the eyes and ears are never filled. They're never satisfied. I have a friend who has a scratchy world map. It's like a lottery ticket, but a world map. And every time he visits a country, he scratches that country to show that he's been there. And I think he's scratched nearly the whole world now. He's a massive globetrotter. But if I asked him, man, do you think you've explored the whole world? I doubt that he would answer, yes, I've, I've seen it all. I can't even explore all of Sydney. and It's on my back step, right? The eye can always see more. The ear hear more. They will never be filled up. Our experiences are never filled up. There's always something lacking, something still empty, still waiting to be filled. And because that's always the case, nothing changes. Nothing is new. Come, come with me through verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There's nothing new. We still eat, drink, sleep, work, have shelter. Humans are not doing anything radically new than to what they were doing the very first moment we were made. Now, there might be a few objections at this point. And let's work through them. I, I think they're weak objections, but it's worth raising them. We might say things do change. There are new things. What about microevolution, humanity developing and society getting better and better and better? But I'd say we all know deep down that the, this is a fairy tale that's getting easier and easier to disbelieve, that society is somehow getting better and better. The fantasy of the 20th century was of utopia. We believed that we were millimetres away from just pulling together in one big happy utopia, living together in peace and harmony. But then 1914, World War One, And even then, people called it the war to end all wars. This is the last war, and then we're done, we're finished. 
and then we can live happily ever after. Well, 1939 shattered any illusion left of no war. Sorry, I say that with a smile on my face, but it's, that is devastating. How horrible. And if we thought, well, close to that, close to no war, a year ago, Ukraine reminds us of how naive that is, not to mention the hundreds of other conflicts that have happened since World War II that we're just too removed from to care about. But it's not as though war is the only measure of change and development, is it? What, what about the riches and the comfort that we live in now that our grandparents could only dream of? Hasn't society developed here? We've got better? Well, a quick scratch at the surface finds that, yes, we may have increased in our riches and our wealth, but we're categorically worse off elsewhere. You know we're the most medicated generation for anxiety and depression ever? And we record the most suicides in human history. That's a tragedy, terrible. The adjustments we make that we think we change society to, to get from one thing to the next to get better and better and better and develop, those adjustments end up undermining something else somewhere else. The changes in society are superficial. They're surface level. Fundamentally, we haven't changed. Okay, but what if someone says there are new things under the sun? We have the internet, don't we? Telephones, fast food, internal combustion engine, renewable energy. But all these things are just technology and people had technologies 2,000 years ago that were new under the sun. They don't really change the DNA of human existence. We have the technology today to get rid of any trace of poverty and starvation on the entire face of the world, but we don't. Why? Because humans haven't changed. There's nothing new under the sun. Our morality, our society, our mortality. These things don't change. The, the big building blocks of human existence do not change. There is nothing new under the sun, which ties us to the last reason that everything is meaningless. Everything will be forgotten. Ultimately, the last vestiges of meaning are undermined by any memory of anything being scrubbed away by death. Have a look in verse 11. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Maybe you could say, oh, don't we live on in the memories of others? But not for long. Even those who hold memories of you will die and their memories of you with them. Sure, we know Napoleon, Christopher Columbus, Alexander the Great, but do you know them or do you know about them? See, there's nothing personal about our relationship to Napoleon. Death unravels even the memory of you. You know, we have a modern poet that's considered these things. I want you to listen to some of the things he says. Ticking away the moments that make up a dull day, fritter and waste the hours in an offhand way, kicking around on a piece of ground in your hometown, waiting for someone or something to show you the way, tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You're young, life's long, 
there's time to kill today. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And you run and run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. Every year is getting shorter. Never seem to find the time. Plans that either come to naught or half a page of scribbled lines. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. The time is gone. The song is over. Thought I'd more to say. This is chilling, isn't it? Its similarity to Ecclesiastes is chilling. Now, if you've never heard of Pink Floyd, there's some education left for you to do, right? (laughs) It turns out not even Pink Floyd is new under the sun. His thoughts have been thought before him. Is there anything at which someone can point to and say, look, this is new? Not even the great philosophers of the 19th century, the sceptics who doubted everything, were new under the sun. Their thoughts were thought before them. They are recorded here in Ecclesiastes long before their time. There is nothing new. Nothing changes. Everything is meaningless. How uncomfortable. (laughs) Do you feel uncomfortable? I I feel uncomfortable still now. I've done this talk three times. So... (laughs) And we're quick to run to the New Testament, aren't we? And go, no, 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 everything is meaningless. No, no, don't do it. I don't think that's even quite right. And that would be a waste of reading Ecclesiastes. There is wisdom to be gained, which is my next point. There is wisdom to be gained from meaningless. Come with me to chapter 2. We're skipping ahead, but that's okay. There's too much gold to dig through to spend time on it all. So chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. That also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Verse 4, I undertook great projects. Verse 8, I amassed silver and gold for myself. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You know, one writer calls these chapters a great feather duster to sweep away all our illusions, all of the pretenses we run to to find meaning. And I like to think of it more like a battering ram. It just comes after the towers that we run to for safety from meaninglessness and smashes them down with this great battering ram. You know, we run to pleasure and he comes after us and breaks the tower down. He says, pleasure is madness and folly. And we we call this hedonism now, a pursuit of self-indulgent pleasure-seeking. I broke it to them this morning, but I told my family, they're not always pleasurable. Heck, you ask them, and I'm not always pleasurable. And COVID ISO really puts that to the test. Kids can be a handful, and tempers run short, things fly. If life was just about pleasure-seeking, I wouldn't have a family. Have you noticed... But that's exactly what 
our culture around us is doing at the moment, delaying family because it's too much of an inconvenience to lifestyle. Not those people who, by circumstance, haven't been able to. I mean conscious decision, consciously deciding, I don't want that because it will ruin the way that I live. Foolishness. Folly. It doesn't matter where you run, the teacher comes after you with his battering ram. He even batters down wisdom itself. Have a look in verse 15. It says, Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, This too is meaningless, for the wise like the fool will not long be remembered. The days have already come when they will both be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Not even wisdom in and of itself is meaningful. The careful, diligent, mindful, self-controlled person meets the same end as the reckless fool. Pleasure, projects, wealth, work, wisdom, the teacher comes after them all and shatters them with his battering ram and methodically works through everything under the sun just in case you didn't think he really means everything and he knocks them over because they're all ultimately undone by the fact of the first three verses. Everything is meaningless because there is no gain, because nothing changes, because nothing's new, and because everything will be forgotten. And he does this not so that we'll learn by imitation. So, you know, we would go out and try and see if we can find wisdom and uh, meaning in all these things, but he does it so that we'll learn by his example, by his experience. I don't know if your dad ever said something like this to you, but he did to me. He said, the best lessons learnt in life are somebody else's. And this is what's happening in Ecclesiastes here. The teacher is going around and he's doing all the things. He's going around and debunking the meaningfulness of everything to save us from our lives being defined by something that is just completely a waste, meaningless. He's giving us freedom from fruitless human endeavour that would have our life chasing after the things that we think will give us satisfaction and enjoyment. I've just realised I've missed something in my outline. (laughs) But this is a piece of wisdom that he's giving us, the wisdom to be learnt from meaninglessness. He's freeing us from human endeavour that would have our lives chasing after these things. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't be defined by these things because you'll be let down by them. I'll give you three examples of human endeavour that we run to to try to find meaning and significance. We'll work through a couple of them. The first one is prestige. And when I think of prestige, I think of wealth, property portfolio, career, popularity, those kinds of things. And I wonder how far you climb up the corporate ladder or the popularity ladder, whatever ladder it is, before you realise that the people at the top seem to have the same issues as you, if not worse, and they're still not satisfied. What about family? People run to family to find purpose and significance and meaning. But are families ever entirely functional? What of the tragedy of broken homes, of parents neglecting children, of children rebelling against parents, of children leaving the home and it's empty? or of parents dying, or even worse, of children dying. 
Try telling someone from that kind of family that family is what gives you purpose and meaning and significance. That would be terrible. It would be horrible. What about the third thing that people run to to find significance and meaning is a human endeavour. Experience. When I think experience, I think trying new things. See the world for yourself. Experiment. Live your best life. And I know people who've tried this. And their freedom ends up looking more like slavery. As their appetite for the exciting and the exotic grows and grows, but what they feel just gets duller and duller and duller. None of these things will satisfy. Give them up. Don't pursue them thinking that they will fulfill you. That's the first piece of wisdom gained from meaninglessness. Freedom from fruitless endeavour. So what does that mean? What do, what do we do with that? Do we just keel over and give up and, you know, oh, better not to have any expectations so you're never let down? Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about now? Like, what do we do? Well, no, not that, because there is enjoyment to be had, but only when human endeavour is given up, which is the second piece of wisdom to be gained from meaninglessness. Empty hands can receive the gift from God, the gifts from God. Human endeavour will be fruitless, but if we release our hands from gripping so tightly onto the things that we think will satisfy us, we'll be able to receive the gifts from God. Have a look at verse 24 with me. It says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. See that important phrase there in verse 24? It says, this too, I see, is from the hand of God. And it's an acknowledgement that eating, drinking, satisfaction, wisdom, knowledge, happiness are all gifts from the hand of God. And I think this speaks to a bit of the resistance that we have when we hear that everything is meaningless. There's part of us that doesn't really believe that everything is meaningless because we can point to things in our life that we have enjoyed, that do bring us happiness. And we can see here at the end that there is something to be had, some happiness and satisfaction and, you know, I've got hobbies that I, I indulge in, that I love. I, I love surfing, I love roasting coffee, I love playing board games, I love surfing. I already said that. <laughs> you can tell what I really love. <laughs> and I enjoy these things. They give me happiness. They, does that, doesn't that mean that they're not meaningless? But have a look at how the chapter ends. Look at that last sentence there. There's an important thing there that I didn't read. It says, This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That's shocking, isn't it? Even the gifts God gives are meaningless, the teacher says. And I take it, it's because the gifts of happiness, enjoyment and satisfaction, they're all just gifts, not God himself. 
you can enjoy these things. Look at verse 24 again. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. But give up thinking that you will achieve this and secure them by your own human endeavour. As you enjoy them, acknowledge that they're from the hand of God. But don't forget, this too is meaningless. Because we can turn around and say, sure, I can't can't secure these things by my own efforts, but I'll make it my ambition to enjoy the gifts that God gives me. Our lives are not to be obsessed with the gifts God gives, because that would be to miss the mark of living our lives for God himself. Regardless of whether you're happy or not, the giver is more important than the gifts. God is not just some sugar daddy that gives us what we want. You know, I worry because I give my daughters sugar all the time and they love it. I want them to love me, not just the things that I give them. Do you see what's more important? The giver or the gifts? I want a relationship with them, not just for them to be addicted on sugar. Regardless of whether you're happy or satisfied, or wealthy, or wise? Is your life characterised by living for the things that God gives or by living for God himself? Or as this book so wonderfully puts it, to fear God. Let me pray that that would be the case for all of us. Heavenly Father, let me give thanks for this word that we have in Ecclesiastes that reshapes our understanding of reality. We pray that you would give us wisdom to not be defined by meaningless things and not pursue just the gifts. Might our lives uh, be lived for your name, for your glory, for your honour. Might we live for you in Jesus' name. Amen.